Okay, Bridge Kids, you are dismissed. And the rest of us are going to talk about intentional living. Today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I don't know about you, um, I like coming to a new year and then thinking about getting a new start, a fresh start, to get a redo, um, and uh, to set some goals, a few, and I try to be as realistically as I can, but uh, one of the things we want to do uh, this year is um, we're, we put in the program a reading plan. Uh, for those of you, uh, some of you don't have a reading plan, some of you may want a reading plan, but sort of a get started back into scripture in 2020. And this is a five-day plan. Some of you get overwhelmed by a seven-day plan. So this is a five-day plan. And you could actually read through the Bible in a year if you chose to, or you could set your sights on reading through the New Testament in a year with a five-day plan. So we hope uh, many of you will think about what would work for you and um, let's do this together. In 1950, uh, cars that raced in the Indianapolis 500 had pit crews of four people that included the driver. Now, some of you don't remember 1950. I don't remember it either. But I remember listening in the 1950s on the radio to the Indianapolis 500. No one was allowed to touch the car except the pit crew. A routine pit stop to change two tires and uh, fill the gas tank took uh, just over 60 seconds. Today, an Indy crew, pit crew, includes uh, at least 20 people in the crew, six, uh, excuse me, 11 members, excuse me, in the crew, not counting the driver. Six of the 11 have direct contact with the car. Five of the crew work behind the scenes, actually behind the wall, but they are assistants to the crew. A full-service pit stop replaces all four tires, adjusts the wings, and tops off the tank in less than eight seconds. Formula One pit crews are even bigger. They are the ones that have up to 20 people. The key is that everyone knows their role and does their part. Each one does their job with purpose and passion so that the, the team completes a service pit stop in less than three, sec, three seconds, if you can believe that. When you carry that kind of purpose and that kind of passion to the church, there could be amazing results. Um, if, you, if the work of the church is left to a small group of people, uh, we often say 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Now, that's not true at the bridge. But it's not uncommon that a small group carry the weight of ministry in a church. Um, then progress is slow, and it's going to be awkward. But if the work of the church is done by every Christ follower who knows and serves in their role, and that might include Sunday morning, it might include during the week, maybe growth groups or worship team or student ministries or other things, or it might be in your workplace. 
living for Christ or in your neighborhood or at your school. The kingdom of God pushes back the forces of darkness. Today we're going to start a short series, Intentional Living for 2020. So if you could get a fresh start, if you could get a clean slate, how would you live differently in 2020? Would you do anything differently? Or would you just continue to focus on the things that you're doing right now, things you're doing well? So we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. This is a classic passage of theology, and it's a practical passage to help our pit crew uh, get on the same page. So I want to read uh, Philippians chapter 2, um, beginning with the first four verses. Philippians chapter 2, if you grabbed a Bible when you came in, that's on page 819. Philippians chapter 2, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. They are the Philippians. They are believers there. And uh, this is in the first century in the 60s AD. And Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians chapter 2. So the first thing, if you follow along on your outline uh, in your program, uh, the, the first thing we want to address is to pursue relational unity in verses 1 through 4. Pursue relational uni unity. So uh, indie pit crews and Formula One racing crews must have unity to be able to do what they do. But you know what? They don't have to like each other. But in the church, it's different. God has a different design. He has different intentions for his people. The church is called to love one another. God isn't just inter interested in getting to the end with the finished product. He's very interested on how we get there. So uh, let's see how this works. First, uh, it starts with your personal relationship with Christ in verse 1. So it's based on our connection. When you place your faith in Christ, uh, God took you, the Holy Spirit took you and connected you with the spiritual body, the body of Christ. And you became connected to God's family. You became a child of God. And the Holy Spirit came to live in you, to indwell you. Um, Verse 1 says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. So these are conditional statements, and it sort of looks like we would read today, well, if this condition were true, then this should happen. But what if this condition is not true? Well, here's the deal. In the original language, this would be a third-class condition, and the, 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 the reader already knows it is true. We, everyone knows it's true. That's the condition. It is true. Since it is true, we could translate it that way. Or we could translate it, because this is true. 
you have encouragement from being united with Christ. And then he goes on to say, uh, if there's any comfort from his love. So these are all benefits. All these conditional statements are actually benefits, things that are already true. If any comfort from his love. Have you ever experienced God's love for you? Have you ever experienced that you don't deserve to have a relationship with God and have your sins forgiven and being given the gift of eternal life? Have you ever experienced that you don't deserve grace, God's unmerited favor? Well, if you have, you've, you've, you've experienced one of the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I will never deserve it, but I am loved by God. And to be honest with you, um, I, I got the grace thing really early, and it changed my life. It was awesome. But along the way, I had to be convinced more and more that God loved me, that he cared about me. And that's been a, a lifetime process of growing and understanding how God loves me. Now, one of the easy things about God's love is being a dad and knowing how I view my imperfect kids and to think God loves me even more than I love my kids. And he puts up with me even more than I put up with my imperfections and my kids' imperfections. You know, it's called grace. It's God's love. And when I want my very best for my kids, even when I know that there are times that it's going to hurt them or they're going to suffer or they're going to experience pain, but I know it's really going to be good in the long run, I get that God sometimes wants me to go through hard times and difficulty and sometimes pain because he's working good in my life. And then he goes on to say, so any comfort from his love, if any uh, common sharing in the Spirit. Have you ever experienced the Holy Spirit connecting the dots for you? Maybe it's during worship. You know, sometimes I'm not very expressive. You know, some of you are very expressive, and I'm not very expressive. But I can be in worship, and when I, when I see the truth on the screen of something that's really significant for me in my life or something that I understand... And it just connects to my core. I don't show it much. I, I might get tears. You know, I, I, I found the um, um, joy to the world very moving. Not just because it's this Christmas tradition, but because of the truth. It's like what the angels are going to sing in heaven. You know, it's that just... Uh, work of God. Um, and, you know, there are times that uh, through prayer and in, in time with other believers that might be in a, in a growth group, in a Bible study where you're studying or you're sharing or you're, you're just talking and the Holy Spirit makes a connection with you and the group or you and someone else in the group. It's the work of the Holy, it's the experience of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives through worship, through prayer, even through a sermon. Could you believe that? Um, 
And he goes on to say, if there's any tenderness and compassion, have you ever experienced God's tenderness and compassion? Have, have you, has, I can tell you this because I was 25 when I came to faith in Christ and I was an atheist, okay? So I, the whole experience was pretty pretty big deal. But it began to change the way I viewed other people. It began to change the way I viewed people in need, people who were hurting. And I began to feel compassion for people. That was not like me. That was a change. And it just continues to grow as a Christ follower. Now, if you grow up from a small child, some of those things are just kind of part of your life, and maybe you're not sure. Um, Have you ever experienced God's tenderness toward you from another person? Maybe you deserve something harsh. Maybe you deserve some kind of justice, and somebody was kind and gracious toward you. You were going through a very difficult time, and somebody was compassionate Somebody listened. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody thought about you during the week. Have you experienced that? The work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. These are benefits. And one of the things, if if, if it's like, I've never experienced any of that, then maybe you have never really got connected with God. Maybe you've not really connected with Christ. And and that's one thing you need to be clear about, is what Jesus did for you, that he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sins, and he invites you into relationship through faith, that you trust him, trust what Jesus did on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and begin a new relationship with God. So, um, Pursuing relational unity starts with your personal relationship with Christ. Next, it requires pursuing like-minded love for one another. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Then make my joy complete, the Apostle Paul says. Now he's writing to the Philippian church, and he's the one who kind of uh, is invested in, in planting the church. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. He's talking about getting on the same page in the spiritual sense, in the, uh, by submission to Christ. Now, Paul says, make my joy complete. If this would make the Apostle Paul's joy complete, do you think it makes Jesus' joy complete? And the answer is absolutely, because it brings joy to him. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. This is the willingness of each person to be on the same page, being one in spirit and one in mind. This is a call for spiritual unity under the lordship of Christ. This is a call for submission to Christ, the head of the church. Now, one of the cool things this last year in 2019... um, I'm very impressed with how God worked in our church through the Grow Forward campaign because we saw God get us all together on the same page. And it's never really quite happened like that before. We've always had some people moving in the right direction and some people kind of coming along, but 
I was just so impressed how God worked through us as a church body. It wasn't 20% doing 80% or 20% giving 80%. It was each person doing his part. And that is a new sense of unity at the bridge. And we prayed about this. We worked toward it. We set us goals toward this. We, we instructed about this. And the whole church came together. Good job, by the way. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, uh, supports this whole idea. Be devoted to one another in love. The apostle writes, honor one another above yourselves. So, the Apostle Paul here, first century, he writes to the church at Rome, the Romans. And he, he says this similar thing, be devoted. Uh, devotion to one another is a high commitment. I'm not sure the American church does very well with this. If, and, and, you know, we live in, in, a, in a time when uh, we have so many things. We have... Uh, Resources, we can travel, we have technology, we have tons of information about what to do and what not to do that guides our thinking, and church sometimes is just one more good thing. And if you read through the New Testament, and if God's principles are eternally valuable, this commitment is higher than most of us think. An unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. That's commitment of the church, the body of Christ. Now, I'm not here to make any rules. I just want to say I think the American church is weak. We were in a third world country. And we had persecution come on us, and it was about life or death, we would get commitment. Now, there's no need to manufacture that. I just hope we can continue to grow on what it means to be committed to the body of Christ. Um, thirdly, it eliminates selfish ambition. Pursuing relational unity eliminates selfish ambition and vain conceit. Um, verse, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit is empty pride. Um, a couple years ago was a big class reunion I had, and my grandson got to uh, searching the Internet, and he found my class's website. And they had pictures from grade school and junior high and high school. And they had, you know, uh, school book pictures and stories, and they had newspaper stories from the school. And my grandson came across this description of uh, Jerry Kellen being conceited. It was sort of like a funny joke, you know, but that was my reputation. I was so insecure growing up. From my family background, for a lot of different reasons, I was just so insecure, so I just had to manufacture who I was and my, I had to manufacture my worth and my value and how I presented myself to people. And a whole lot of people thought I was conceited, you know, bigger head than reality. And 
it was true, you know. And, but my grandson finds this 50 years later. And uh, he had to ask me, but he says, Granddad, what's conceited mean? So I, I did tell him. But there's a danger in the church that we sometimes, some people get a little bit higher view of themselves than they really should. Sometimes people have a lower view of themselves than they should. But sometimes people get a little overconfident about their value to the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul is reminding us, don't do it out of empty conceit. Don't do it out of selfish ambition. Check your motives when it comes to serving, when it comes to daily living. Uh, if you find that you have a motive that's a little bit selfish, it's inappropriate. Um, if you find your motive is prideful, it's inappropriate. Um, Next comes a unique feature of Christianity, and it's the concept of humility. Humility, as you may know, was not valued in the first century. We see it as a virtue. It's because of the impact of Christianity. In the first century, it was viewed as a weakness. You were never to display this kind of weakness about everybody being more important than you, uh, but it's about asserting your, your own importance. And Paul writes, uh, it demonstrates, or excuse me, the point, it demonstrates humility towards others in verses 3 and 4. He says, verse 3, the second half, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each one to the interests of others. Um, and this is hard for American churches, I think. Uh, we... We have so much information that says you should take care of num number one because nobody else is going to look out for you. And that's like a strong value in our culture. And sometimes we embrace it too much as believers. Um, now think about this too. Think, we're talking about relational unity, about how to get along in the body of Christ, about being humble, about not being self-centered or prideful. How would this work in your home? when you um, demonstrate humility, husbands, toward your wives, and you value her as more important than you? And how would this work if, wives, you demonstrated humility to your husbands? Not a doormat, but humility, valuing their needs above yours. And how did this work for brothers and sisters, and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters, if they were humble toward each other? and place the value of their brother or their sibling before their own. We can teach this at home. If we could get this at home, it would work easily in the church. And how would this work if we would carry this into the workplace? Where instead of taking the world trappings of what your rank and order is in the marketplace... You valued other people ahead of your own needs, whether they were your supervisor or whether you, they worked uh, for you. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but for each of you, the interests of others. Matthew 11, verse 29 
Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is what we can learn from Jesus. As we follow him, we can learn humility. If we're relying on him for his strength, for his leadership, for his wisdom, for clarity. If we follow him, he is gentle and humble. And we get the benefit of finding rest for our souls. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, uh, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Um, what if you intentionally sought to realign your life for 2020? Just use this. There's a marker coming. What can I sharpen in the coming year? Is this an area that I need to grow in? I need to think about humility in my family, in my workplace, in my role in the church. And just call it intentional living because you're going to hear about it the next few weeks. Uh, so first, we pursue relational unity. Uh, we're to have the same love. We're, we pursue this unity, the same mind. We come under the lordship of Christ. Um, we're to put off uh, selfishness and pride, and we're to humbly consider others' needs more important than ourselves. And we come to verses 5 through 11 to pursue a Christ-like mindset. And we find in verse 5 that Jesus is our ultimate role model. I don't think I probably have to... Um, convince you of that, but in chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle writes, in your relationships with one another, this is in the home, in the church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, have the same mind, have the very same attitude as Jesus, learn from him and follow him, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Um, the Apostle Paul writes in uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, he says, May the God who gives endurance. So this is like a benediction. It's like a prayer request. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, the mind of Christ. So you could pray about this. You can ask God help develop in you the mind of Christ. If you're a Christ follower, he's already started that work, and this is about continuing to develop the mind of Christ in you, to continue to grow as a Christ follower, uh, to give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify is one of those uh, Christian terms. It's a religious term. It's a good term, but it's not something we use a lot in our culture, but the idea is to magnify, to bring focus on, to shine on, to give the credit due to the one who loved us and sent his son to die for us. Next, Jesus did not command that he be treated with importance. We see that in verse 6. Um, if we are to have the mind of Christ, we must learn from Christ's humility. Verse 6, who, that is Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used 
to his own advantage. So he existed before his birth in Bethlehem, before the first Christmas, he existed from eternity past with the Father in heaven, who being in the very nature God, meaning all of his essentials, he, he is God. He did not consider this super high position, this role in the kingdom of God in an eternity to be used to his own advantage. Um, when he came to this earth, he wasn't going to play that card. Um, if you remember, uh, I think we looked at this last week. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. He became human. Um, verse 3 says, through him all things were. Without him nothing was made that was, has been made. Jesus is the creator God, and that's what he was doing in the beginning. He was in Genesis 1, verse 1, and he created the heavens and the earth long before he was ever born in Bethlehem. And so Jesus never uh, played this trump card, no pun intended, that he could pull the God card, that he could... Um, zap somebody dead if he wanted to, if he didn't like them. If he wanted to bring judgment soon, he could do that. If he wanted to do all kinds of miracles to impress people, he could have, but he didn't. He was very careful in how he displayed his power and the miracles he performed. He was very humble. He was Here's the thing, the, the beautiful thing about this passage here. He was both fully God and fully human. And this is really important in theology. Uh, sometimes this is not understood. But uh, Jesus died on the cross and he paid the penalty for all sin, right? Everybody agrees with that. How big is the penalty? Okay, let's start calculating. It's got to cover Adam, ever, every human ever born. How many is that? And we got a we got a calculator. We got somebody. We got a hand. It's okay. It's and the and the number is just going and going and going and going. What about the people who haven't been born yet? How many is that? I don't know. They haven't been born yet. They're going to be. And Jesus' death covered all of those sins. How many? Well, think about who Jesus is. His life is infinitely valuable. There is no finite value to the life of Jesus. He pays it all. That's why the gospel is good news. There is no sin that he cannot cover. Um, it's already paid for. Um, Matthew 16, 24. 
Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And if we're going to have the same attitude as Christ, and he's our role model, we need to follow him. And uh, he was willing uh, to set aside his own personal needs and put others ahead of him all the way to the cross. And we, uh, if we're going to follow him, we too must be willing to deny ourselves and to follow him. What if we all did that in 2020? How would the pit crew operate? Doing the mission of helping people connect with God and developing them into fully devoted followers of Christ. Verse 7, Jesus took uh, the lowly position of a servant, and we see that rather... Uh, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Fully God, uh, fully man. He took the nature of a servant. Um, uh, think about this. He taught people. He spent time with people. He discipled people, his own disciples. He counseled with people. He did miracles. He touched people. He gave his time, hour after hour after hour. He didn't come to have people wait on him so he could sit back and eat grapes and uh, rest, but he came to serve. And we see that in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The, the, that ransom, he came to pay the price. He came to pay for the sin penalty of the entire world. Um, in verse 8, we see Jesus displayed blameless humility and obedience, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And if you read through the New Testament and you see how Jesus came to do his Father's will, he had that one focus, to do his Father's will. He came to be obedient. He was even willing to experience suffering at his Father's will. And as you know, uh, crucifixion was considered one of the most uh, horrendous kinds of death in the first century. It was brutal. It was agonizing. And... Uh, it was viewed that way across all cultures. Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified if they required the death penalty. And Jesus was obedient even to death on a cross. In the first century, uh, the Apostle John writes in John 6, 38, uh, For I have come down from heaven, this is Jesus speaking, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So this is earlier, first year in Jesus' ministry, and he makes this announcement. He's here to do the Father's will, just very clearly. Then later, uh, the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays in Matthew 26, verse 39, uh, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And so, humanly, Jesus understands 
how great this burden is. And he's facing crucifixion. And he just cries out, if possible, God, take this away. He's not a glutton for punishment. But the bottom line is he wants to submit his will to the Father. And then Matthew uh, 26, 42, he went away a second time and prayed, my Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. And, and Jesus is committed to do the Father's will. We come to the last section, verses 9 through 11. And I'm just going to read the 9 through 11, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And uh, Paul writes, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus waited for God to exalt him. Jesus did not exalt himself, but he did the Father's will, and he waited on God. How many times do you read in the book of Psalms, wait, wait, I say, wait on the Lord. So God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So after the crucifixion, uh, Jesus is put in the grave. He's buried. And on the third day, he's raised again. We call it the resurrection. And he walked among his disciples. And 50 days later, he ascends, excuse me, 40 days later, he ascends into heaven where he sits down at the right hand of God in this exalted position in the highest place where his name is above every name. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now think about this. Every person, every angel ever created, every, every person ever born, will bow before Jesus Christ in submission. That includes Christ followers and people who never claimed to follow Christ. They will all recognize Jesus Christ for who he is, and they will all bow in recognition. The question for us is, will that be a joy for us? Will that be a joy because our Jesus has shown the entire universe and revealed himself to everyone at once. Our Lord. It should be a great joy for us. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth. Believers and unbelievers under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That includes Angels, good. Angels, evil. That includes Satan himself will bow and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord.
And there's a time coming in history, and this is going to take place, and you and I are going to be there. Absolutely. You and I are going to be there. Every knee will bow in humble reverence, in humility, and in awe. So God exalted Jesus for his humility and his obedience. Peter writes this for us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. He says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. Sometimes younger folks don't know what to do with old people. Um, all of you, just to make sure, young or old, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now, this has always grabbed me because sometimes I'm prideful. And as soon as I recognize that, I realize I'm working against God. As soon as I, he opposes me, uh, it's like swimming up river. Uh, that's not fun for very long. God opposes he, the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. God's favor, that's about grace. I need more grace every day to live my life. I would like to have God on my side to strengthen me for each day. He shows favor to the humble. Next slide. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. He lifted Jesus up in due time. And there's, this, there's a place for, the, for him to do that. For one, ultimately, eternally, there will be a resurrection. And all who are truly born again and believers will have a resurrected body in heaven for eternity. And there's a sense of that being an exaltation. But I think that's for here and the now as well. That as you walk with God humbly, let him recognize you when you need recognition and when you deserve to be recognized or promoted. Um, but let it be his time. Don't manipulate Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So, as I mentioned earlier, it's been a joy to watch the bridge in 2019 and to see how uh, we came together on the same page in the Grow Forward uh, campaign. Um, it's, it's been amazing to watch us come together in unity with the same purpose and it's been amazing to see you make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, to have the same mind, and we demonstrated that with our finances. And I just want to challenge us to continue in 2020 to pursue the same mind, to, re to pursue relational unity, to pursue humility, to pursue having the mind of Christ toward each other in our homes and in our church, and we can take that out into our world. Let's stand. You can sit, and I'm going to pray, okay? You can sit. We'll have you stand for the song. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for um, Philippians chapter 2 and um, the focus on being reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done. And to be mindful of our need to be humble. 
and our need to set aside pride and selfish ambition. And for us to pursue uh, unity in our homes, to be, to be on the same page in our homes, same values, under the same lordship of Christ, and to have unity in our church so that we might continue to strive together for the sake of the gospel. Father, we look forward to what you want to do in us in 2020. Enable us each to be faithful so that together as a church, we will be faithful to you. For Jesus' sake, amen.